For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, we ask you, as we always do, to join us in this place this morning, and we trust that you are here with us. May my words be your words, and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. When raw gold is pulled out of the ground, it's indistinguishable from regular worthless rocks. It's unusable in its current state. To give it value, it must be refined. Now, in order to refine it, I looked this up this week, in order to refine it, raw gold is mixed in a crucible with lead and silver. And the mixture is heated until it all melts together and the metals in the resulting alloy, when it gets hot enough, the metals start to separate from one another, drawing the impurities, that is anything that's not actual gold, out of the gold. And as that happens, the pure gold sinks to the bottom of the crucible, and then as it cools, gathers around the lead. And after that, the gold-encased lead is removed and then heated again, in another little cup, which has special holes in it that allows the lead to seep out. Then, in order to further separate the remaining gold from the silver, it's placed in a bath of nitric and hydrochloric acids. And finally, voila, pure gold. All the impurities are gone. And you're left with something that has absolutely nothing in common with the seemingly worthless rock that was dug out of the mine. Something completely new, incredibly beautiful, and of surpassing value. Now, there are two things that immediately struck me about this refining process. First is how difficult it is. There are lots of complicated steps. Getting impurities out of gold is no easy feat. But the second thing that struck me is how brutal It is raging fire and caustic acid, heating, cooling, heating again, in and out, everything really extreme. The purification process is not for the faint of heart, which gives me pause when I consider the prophet Micah's insistence that God, our God, the God of the Bible, is a refiner's fire. To make something that's full of impurities into something pure takes a lot of brutal work. And I didn't even tell you the bad part yet. In order to even begin the purification process, the refiner's fire has to get hot enough to actually melt the gold. And the melting point of gold is just over 1,000 degrees Celsius. That's Almost 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit for those Americans in the room. 
Uh, when I was at the University of Arizona, one of the worship songs that my Christian fellowship group sang a lot was called Refiner's Fire by the Canadian songwriter Brian Dirksen. Maybe some of you know it. Imagine with me, if you will, a room full of college students, probably a few more that are in this room now, singing these words to God. Purify my heart. Let me be as gold and precious silver. Purify my heart. Let me be as gold, pure gold. And then the chorus. Refiner's fire. My heart's one desire is to be holy, set apart for you, Lord. I choose to be holy, set apart for you, my master, ready to do your will. Now, we sang those words with all of our hearts. We really meant them. We wanted to be holy. We were ready to do God's will. We were indeed willing to choose God's refining fire. I choose to be holy, we sang. Come on, God, refine me. But I don't think any of us really knew what we were asking for. I certainly didn't. I don't think any one of us knew what it might be like for God's refining fire to actually descend upon us. I don't think any of us were thinking of a fire hot enough to burn and melt gold. Not one of us was thinking, as we sang those words, of 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, if we had been thinking about such temperatures, if we'd thought that God was that kind of a fire, we might have asked ourselves the same question that Malachi asks. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, indeed, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Now, it's Advent. An appropriate time to be talking about the messenger of the covenant of the Lord of hosts coming. Indeed, that's what Advent is all about. He's coming and we're waiting. But Malachi is announcing a distinctly different sounding Advent message than the one the world sends. It's even actually a different Advent message than the one my own house sends. In my house, Advent means picking out the right tree decorating the mantelpiece, hanging stockings, and for certain members of my household, agonizing over three-page Christmas lists full of things they know full well they're not going to get. <laughs> but you know, there are some things on those lists that will end up under the tree. On balance, Advent is an exciting time. Christmas is coming. And even though we're mostly waiting for the arrival of presents, we sometimes do stop, take a moment, and remember the baby in a manger on whom we are also waiting. We read the biblical stories, we light the Advent wreath, and we pray. Either way, it's a time of joy, of expectation, of excitement. But Malachi, Malachi is not so sure we should be excited. Malachi knows that the arrival, the advent of an almighty God is not necessarily good news. It's certainly not good news for sinful human beings. 
Not for those of us who aren't clean, who have impurities, who need to be refined. Just like an impure lump of gold might not exactly want to be dipped into a fire roaring at 2,000 degrees, a sinner might look into God's refining fire and think to himself, wait a minute, is all this really necessary? Are my impurities really that bad? Maybe I can stay just the way I am. Or maybe, and I think this is what many of us wish to say, even if only in our subconscious, maybe we can just turn the fire down a little bit. I don't really need to be melted down altogether and made into something new, do I? Perhaps we like to tell ourselves all we really need is some improvement. But our God is not in the human improvement business. He's in the death and resurrection business. He doesn't burnish your edges a little bit and soap the dirt out from behind your ears. Your problem is much deeper than that. Scripture locates the human problem not around your easily accessible edges, but right at your core, in your heart. Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who, he wonders, can understand it? Jesus said that all the things that defile you, all the things that make you impure, from adultery to murder and everything in between, spring from your heart. John Calvin, the great reformer, called the human heart an idol factory. And the God of the Bible is an idol destroyer. Which sounds great when you're talking about Asherah poles or statues of Molech. Those idols worshipped by those people. But when you realize that you have idols too, and that your most precious idol, in fact, is yourself, your own self-sufficiency, that you love that more than anything else, that's when the idol-destroying refiner's fire of Almighty God takes on a frightening aspect. Because as it turns out, we love our impurities. Now, the wicked love their sin, of course, but even we who hunger and thirst for righteousness, we who sing refiner's fire and actually mean it, even we Christians fall prey to disordered loves. In addition to the simple loving of sin that we are all prone to as fallen human beings, we Christians can sometimes fall in love with our religious effort for its own sake, as though it by itself might save us from the fire. But that's an impurity too. Even that must be burned away. It turns out that God must do his idol-destroying work on you and me. In the same way that an idol an Asherah pole or a statue of Molech can't save you, you cannot save yourself. And God, who knocked down idols in the Old 
Testament to prove to the people that they were powerless, that they were simply statues to false gods, he'll knock down your idols too. His refiner's fire burns your favorite idol, you, to the ground, making it impossible for you to claim that you can rescue yourself. Now, I'll admit that to our ears, that seems awfully cruel. How could God be so mean? I do have some redeeming qualities, don't I? Maybe just a little shining is all I need, a little tweak here and there. This whole refining fire and fuller's soap seems a bit over the top, doesn't it? I thought I heard somewhere that God don't make no junk. I mean, this idol-destroying God more readily inspires fear than worship. Isn't that just going to turn people off? How is any of this anything like good news? Well, hold on for a second. Let's not start apologizing for God too quickly. In fact, let's begin with the fear. The fear that our lump of gold might feel as it's dangled over a 2,000 degree fire. The fear that Jonathan Edwards tapped into in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. So now, for a minute, let's go toward the fear. Indeed, Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10 says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And when I think of fear combined with fire, I think of Isaiah chapter 6. When the prophet has this vision of coming into the throne room, the presence of Almighty God, and he is terrified. Woe is me, moans Isaiah, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah knows that he's got impurities, and he knows about the refiner's fire and the fuller's soap, and he doesn't want any part of it. He's afraid of what it will do to him, and he should be. But the fire comes to Isaiah anyway, and here something amazing happens. Here we see that sinners in the hands of an angry God is only the beginning of our story, not the end. Listen to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 6. Then one of the seraphim, one of the angels, flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Here comes the fire. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah is not finally destroyed by the fire. God's anger abates. The fire, in a sense, cools. God's refining fire has more work to do than its destructive work, burning the sin out of God's children. Finally, it makes us new. Though we fear that we cannot stand the heat of an altercation with an almighty God, after all, we, like Isaiah, are people of unclean lips, We know one thing with absolute certainty. 
Jesus has trod this path before us. He has stood in our place and withstood the blast furnace of God's righteous anger against sin. He was despised and rejected by men, Isaiah wrote, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. That's Isaiah 53, verses 3 to 5. And this is Jesus saying, I have been there with you. I have been there for you. I have been there in your place. I have borne in my body the destroying work of God so that you can be made new. Malachi asked a question. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, indeed, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but... Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? This is the counterintuitive question that we ask ourselves in Advent. Yes, the Christ child is coming. Yes, he is meek and mild. But he is also God incarnate. Creator of the world and the one who set the moon and sun on their courses. He is holiness He is justice. He is perfection. Who can stand when he appears? The answer is simple. No one. Not Isaiah. Not you. Not me. Jesus can and did. The divine man. The son of God. The second person of the Trinity. God made man can stand when God Almighty appears. And he did. He withstood the refiner's fire and the fuller's soap. But there was no sin in him to burn away. And this is the amazing good news. Jesus had taken our sin onto himself and let the fire of God's justice rain down on that. Because the fire of the wrath of God exhausted itself on Jesus, we were declared pure, made new. God's own purity found in Christ is given to you. His surpassing value given to you. And then to ratify this victory over sin and death and to ensure that his gift of righteousness is truly yours, he rose from the dead three days later. Jesus' empty tomb serves as a guarantee that all of this is actually true, that it really happened, that no matter the depths of your impurity, you are made pure as pure gold and precious silver 
in and on account of Jesus Christ. Almighty God's advent would be terrible news for the unclean. It is terrible fire and caustic acid. You cannot endure the day of his coming. You cannot stand when he appears. Almighty God is coming to earth, which is what we anticipate in Advent. That announcement is a death sentence for sinners, or would be. We celebrate. We celebrate because Almighty God decided to come to earth as our Savior, Jesus Christ. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Knowing that in Christ, resurrection always comes after destruction. Every single time we can actually sing a song like Refiner's Fire with our eyes open. We can identify the idols that our hearts manufacture and actually want them to be destroyed. We can ask God, knowing full well what it means, to take the us that we idolize, the us that would have tried to save ourselves and to obliterate us, to bury us with Christ in his death, to take our very hearts, the source of all disordered desires, our selfishness, our pride, our sexual lusts, our grasps for power, to take the source of all things that would separate us from God, all the things that contaminate us, and put them to death. In fact, we do ask for just that. Every single week we come together. We confess, we say the creed, we come, eat and drink Christ's body and blood broken and shed for us. We ask God to remind us that our idols have been knocked down for the impotent false gods that they are. We ask this in confidence, even in praise, knowing just how hot that refiner's fire is, knowing how much it will hurt to abandon the sin that we are addicted to because we know that it's not the end of our story. We know that though God's refiner's fire will burn us to the ground, we know that he will raise us to new life in Jesus Christ. This is the good news to which Malachi is looking forward After saying that God is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap, that he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, Malachi says that he will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. Then, he says, the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old. And as in former years, these offerings point forward to the one offering sufficient to pay for the sins, not just of Judah and Jerusalem, but for the sins of the whole world and for all time. The offering that was finally pleasing to God 
and able to please him forever. Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, hanging on a cross outside the city wall. It was only as Jesus hung on that cross, making a sacrifice for you, that that final shout was possible. It is finished. And it is. God's wrath satisfied. The fire out. The gold pure. You are made new by Christ. You are clothed with Christ and now safe in him forever. Amen.